You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. As you might know, for the last couple of weeks, I've been out on the road, on a road trip, so to speak, taking care of some personal business and visiting family and friends. And if you listened to Labor Relations Radio last week, where I was recording remotely, you'd know that I had the opportunity to do an interview with former NLRB Chairman Mark Pierce. Well, in addition to Chairman Pierce, I also had the opportunity to interview Mr. Max Nelson, who's the Director of Labor Policy for the Freedom Foundation. Now, although we recorded this episode while I was away, I had some internet issues from where I was, and actually we got cut off for a few minutes while recording this episode. So I decided to wait to air this episode until I got back to the Labor Relations Radio compound. In any case, let me share with you why I wanted to interview someone from the Freedom Foundation. As you probably know, as editor of LaborUnionNews.com, and with nearly 5,000 articles that have been posted in the last five months, that's right, we post nearly 1,000 news articles per month, and it's exhausting, but it's kind of fun, and I run across a lot of articles that pique my interest as every day as I'm posting. And one of those articles a couple of weeks ago was a post by the Freedom Foundation, and it involved a lawsuit that was filed against AFSCME involving the allegedly unlawful deduction of union fees in the public sector. Well, as I'd seen the name Freedom Foundation here and there, I decided to check them out and see if they'd be willing to come on to Labor Relations Radio, and that's how I came across Max Nelson. As I mentioned a minute ago, Max Nelson is the Freedom Foundation's Director of Labor Policy. And in this capacity, Max regularly testifies on labor issues before local governments and state legislatures. Max's research has formed the basis of several briefs submitted to the U.S. Supreme Court, in fact. He's been published in local newspapers around the country and in national outlets like The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, The Hill, National Review, and The American Spectator. In 2019, Max received a presidential appointment to the Federal Services Service Impasses Panel, which resolves contract negotiation disputes between federal agencies and unions. And prior to, prior to joining the Freedom Foundation in 2013, Max worked for WashingtonVotes.org and the Washington Policy Center, as well as interned for the Heritage Foundation. In any case, we had a wide-ranging discussion. Um, it was fun other than the internet issues, but I wanted to share the interview with you and hope you enjoy it. Here's Max Nelson. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Max Nelson, Freedom Foundation, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. So uh, for the listeners, um, you know, what happens is I go through so many news articles and I see something that intrigues me. And then I try to reach out and find somebody who can talk about it. And I think that's what happened a couple weeks ago. You guys, I've seen your name, Freedom Foundation, obviously, I've heard of, but I'd seen the name so many times over the last, I don't know, two, three months that I felt uh, there was something that came up that I felt it was maybe good to have you on talk about things and all that sort of stuff. So 
tell the listeners what the Freedom Foundation is all about. Sure. Uh, so the Freedom Foundation is a, a nonprofit uh, organization. We've been around for 31 years now. And uh, we, we've been guided by our mission statement since our founding to promote individual liberty, free enterprise, and limited accountable government. And so we do that through a, a number of different mechanisms. But uh, in recent years, we've been focused primarily on uh, countering the excesses of government unions, public sector unions. Uh, and much of our work these days, uh, since the U.S. Supreme Court's Janus versus AFSCME decision in 2018, uh, which ended uh, mandatory dues and fees requirements for, for public employees around the country on First Amendment grounds, uh, is we educate uh, and help uh, union-represented public employees understand that they have the ability now to make a choice about uh, union membership that maybe they didn't have before and equip them with the information they need to make an informed decision. So much of our operation is, is outreach directly to these employees. Uh, and then we have a very robust in-house legal team, which comes alongside those workers that might need assistance in getting their dues deductions canceled or resigning their union membership. Uh, and, and generally works to make sure unions are abiding by laws and rules and regulations that, uh, that govern their activities, whether that be at the federal or the state level. Uh, and then, of course, as, as a public policy organization, we do engage in policy advocacy uh, anywhere from the federal government level down to uh, state and local government, uh, again, to make sure that union uh, that, that public employees, union-represented public employees, have meaningful choices about union representation and membership, uh, and to make sure the taxpayers aren't unnecessarily subsidizing union activity. So that's uh, that's a little bit about what's keeping us busy, you know, the last few years. So now you have this um, opt-out program. Is that Freedom Foundation specific? Like, did you guys come up with this opt-out program? So, you know, this goes way back for us. This actually goes back uh, even prior to the Supreme Court's decision in Harris versus Quinn, which was handed down in 2014. Um, we started working uh, to, again, to counter the, uh, the outsized influence of government unions originally here in Washington State, where our headquarters is based. Uh, when we got a new CEO back at the end of 2013, and so we, even from that time, started working with uh, union-represented state workers and public employees uh, in Washington State to help them understand uh, their rights to become a religious objector and pay, you know, an equivalent amount of dues to a charity instead of the union or, you know, to pay the re a reduced agency fee at the time uh, instead of the full union dues rate. So that, that type of educational direct outreach work we, we've been doing for, for many years. Uh, that expanded, of course, with the Harris versus Quinn decision in 2014, uh, which struck down mandatory agency fee requirements for uh, partial or quasi-public employees uh, on First Amendment free speech grounds. Uh, that decision primarily affected uh, union-represented home care workers who were serving Medicaid-eligible clients with functional disabilities. Uh, of which we had 35, 40,000 in Washington State at the time, uh, in addition to about six or 7,000 home-based uh, family child care providers who were serving families with uh, receiving state subsidies. Those two groups uh, were both unionized by the SCIU, had previously been required to pay union dues or fees uh, under state law. Uh, but, you know, as a result of that, Harris' decision were, were extended the ability to make this choice about whether to join and pay dues. 
uh, for the first time. So that opened up a big door for us to expand that outreach effort. Uh, we opened an Oregon office uh, not too long thereafter and began doing similar work uh, in, in Oregon. Uh, and then the Janus decision, uh, of course, came along in, in June of 2018 and, and really expanded the opportunity for that type of outreach, uh, as now, you know, the millions of public employees around the country that work in non-right-to-work states now had this opportunity, again, for the first time to, to decide whether to join the union and pay dues or not. So in, in the wake of that decision, we've expanded our outreach efforts uh, nationwide so we now have offices uh, not just in Washington and Oregon, but in California, in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and remote staff working around the country uh, to make sure that we educate as many public employees around the nation as possible that they have this First Amendment right uh, and, and let them know, you know the customized roadmap in their situation, in their state, in their union, in their workplace uh, to, to getting out if that's something that they want to do. Yeah, I'm on your website right now, and uh, for the listeners, it's freedomfoundation.com, and I'll include a link, but about midway down on your homepage, you have the map of the United States with all the various states, and if you scroll over them, it's it's really clear on where your presence is being felt, and it, you've got the numbers of opt-outs for, say, California, Oregon, Washington, and they're in the tens of thousands, right, and then you go to, say, Utah, and it's 20 people there, 400 in Colorado. It, it seems as though, like, the more offices you open, the more impact you have. Well, certainly the states that, that we have, you know, boots on the ground and a, and a physical presence uh, are the states that we've tended to prioritize. They're also the states that tend to have the largest numbers of union-represented public employees, for instance. You know, there's, there's a lot more in California than there are in Utah, for instance. Right. Uh, but certainly, uh, as, as we grow our efforts and try to be intentional about reaching out into other states that we haven't been active in before, you know, uh, you know we will anticipate that more, more people around the country will continue to take advantage of this option once they've been equipped to do so. So, so let's slow down back up a little bit. Um, for public sector workers and who are covered by unions in non-right-to-work states, um, they get the job. They believe that they're forced or required to to join the union, become members of the union. There's a process in which they opt out, or they can opt out if they choose to exercise their rights. How does that work? So, collective bargaining for non-federal public employees is entirely governed by state law, and so there is a. a fairly wide variety of practices uh, from one state to another, ranging from states like South Carolina, where collective bargaining uh, for public employees is essentially banned, uh, to states like Wisconsin, where it's pretty much all but banned, uh, to states like California, Illinois, New York, uh, where collective bargaining uh, is required by public entities and unions have robust uh, rights under state laws. And so the, the process for individual employees to become uh, dues-paying members and to resign their membership does also vary from one state to the next, and in, in some cases from one union to the next. Now, after the Janus decision struck down that compelled agency fee payment uh, obligation that, that many of these public employees in these non-right-to-work states previously worked under, uh, we've seen 
generally these left of center union friendly states adopt a, a very similar response to the Janus decision, which is essentially to make it as easy as possible for unions to sign people up for membership and as difficult as possible for people to get out. And really the key here to keep in mind is that uh, dues collection is done by the public employer. Uh, and, and it's required uh, often under these state laws that the employer deduct union dues from the paychecks of any employee that authorized those deductions. Now, the, the Supreme Court's ruling in Janus did make it clear that the union and the public employer must have affirmative consent from the employee before initiating any dues withholdings from that person's paycheck. Uh, and so con some consent does need to be provided. Uh, but what we're seeing these states do is authorize uh, not just written consent, but electronic consent or uh, even oral authorizations that could be done over the phone or in person. And really handing control over the payroll deduction process to unions. So typically, uh, the employer is obligated to withhold union dues from any employee the union directs and is only permitted to stop those deductions if the union directs the employer to stop the deduction. So the employee, even though the employer is in the position of administering this process and collecting dues and, and starting and stopping deductions, it's all at the direction of the union, which means the employee, if you want to get out of the union, has to satisfy the union and persuade the union to tell the employer to cancel the deductions. So this, this arrangement, again, which is fairly standard in these generally union-heavy states, gives a lot of control and a lot of potential for coercion uh, to, to the union, to the detriment of the employees. And so uh, we're seeing, for instance, uh, most states and most unions now have strict uh, restrictions on when employees can cancel their deductions. Uh, in some places, the employee can only resign during a, a seven-day window period each year. Uh, oftentimes, these escape periods are, they're not standardized, they are unique to each individual employee and based on a calculation uh, that, that uses as its foundation the day the employee first signed up for union membership, for instance. Uh, and whereas the union can initiate dues deduction based on essentially any type of consent, uh, oftentimes a written uh, dues cancellation is the only type that will be accepted by the union. So you can sign up over the phone, but you got to sit, you know, to get out, you've got to send in a certified uh, letter to the union office, you know, during the seven day window period. And if you miss that, then good luck. You know, you're stuck for another year. Try again, try again next time. So there's a lot of these types of coercive practices, again, that we've seen adopted with some uniformity around the country in these union heavy states uh, with, the, with the goal of, you know, maintaining dues revenue, make, make, limiting people's ability to actually make a meaningful choice about the union membership. And so your map, um, your map takes you to opt out today. It's also up on your, your main page. And so when I go over to opt out today, you've got all 50 states on there. I can click on the state. I can uh, select the union that I'm paying. And then it takes you to a form. And then, so if I fill out the form, do you folks send in the, the form documents or does it go straight to the union? Uh, it, both is, is the answer. If, if an employee uh, completes a dues cancellation form uh, through the website, 
then those are pre-addressed to the union with directions for the employee to, to sign the form and, and send it by a certified mail you know, to the, to the address that, uh, that we've looked up for that union. Uh, but if we send out direct mail to an individual, uh, you know, to a list of public employees that includes opt-out forms, those are, those are returned to us and then we submit them to the union. So it's, it's a mixture of both approaches. Now, to let me just clarify this because I think I know the answer, but I'm just going to double check. So if a union um, receives, let's say there's a 500-person bargaining unit and they receive 260 of them, of these opt-out forms, it does not nullify the union contract. It just opts the employees out from having to pay the union. Correct, yes. This, this is all an in, in individual choice. Uh, I'm not aware. I mean, again, state laws and practices vary, you know, from one to another. Um, but certification and, and the existence of the union is a separate question from whether an individual employee represented by that union is a member or not. And, you, you know, theoretically, yeah, you could have bargaining units. And, and you do have bargaining units uh, with membership that falls below 50%. But the union continues to maintain its certification, continues to bargain with the employer, uh, as an extreme example, we, we have a small police department out here in eastern Washington that's represented by the Teamsters. And uh, <laughs> literally every single police officer in that bargaining unit has resigned their membership uh, with the union. They want nothing to do with the Teamsters any, anymore. Uh, they cannot decertify the Teamsters because they're in the middle of, a, I think it's a four-year collective bargaining agreement. Our state laws, uh, again, provide very strict limitations on when a bargaining unit can file to decertify a union or change unions. Uh, and so in the meantime, yeah, the, the union refuses to walk away from that bargaining unit, despite the fact that nobody is paying dues anymore and nobody wants anything to do with the Teamsters in that, <laughs> in that unit. But our state law does not have any kind of solution for these folks other than wait it out and file a couple of years from now to, to change unions or to decertify. Interesting. So um, I, I'm over on your blog page. I, I realize now what the uh, article was that, that made me reach out to you is the AFSCME local throws in the towel three hours after being served with papers to stop unconstitutional deductions. So going back to the process, um, if I'm an AFSCME member, I, I go through the opt-out today website. I fill out the form. They refuse to... Um, stop deducting dues, then you folks step in? Correct. Yeah, so that's uh, the, the first half of the, of the operation is, is getting information to people, getting the forms that they need. But then the second half of the operation is follow-up. And, and sometimes we're able to help people that may run into issues with their getting their union to cancel their dues deductions. Uh, sometimes we can work through that just you know, by giving people better directions, making sure that they understand whatever rules or procedures the union has in place. Um, but there are a number of occasions where we need to get our legal team involved. Uh, and, and again, sometimes we can resolve the problem with uh, a letter from our attorneys to the union uh, threatening litigation. Uh, and sometimes we have to file uh, lawsuits in federal court. And, you know, the union's reaction is all over the board. Sometimes the union uh, folds right away as soon as litigation is filed. Sometimes they fight it tooth and nail. Uh, different unions, different attorneys, different states and, and courts and factual patterns, you know, produce all sorts of different outcomes. But uh, we've, we've found that it is essential to have 
uh, you know, a, a number of attorneys on staff here. I think we're up to, you know, a dozen or close to a dozen uh, in our legal team that uh, are doing nothing but assisting employees in situations like this uh, every single day. So what happens um, now? Do you have attorneys like, for example, you've got offices in California, Oregon, Washington. If I'm in Utah, for example, where you don't have an office, do your attorneys help employees there as well? Well, we have, uh, you know, I don't know that we have attorneys in-house that are licensed to practice law in every single state. So, you know, we have some limitations, um, but certainly most of the requests for assistance that we get come from the states where we're the most active and where we tend to have, you know, staff on the ground and attorneys licensed to practice and so forth. So as we expand those efforts nationwide, uh, we are growing our legal team. We're partnering with other attorneys and other groups that, that maybe have local counsel so that we are positioned to provide legal assistance anywhere that we're doing outreach. So it's a growing process, uh, and it's a big country with a, uh, a lot of federal courts, but uh, we're, we're getting there. We, we very rarely have to turn somebody away. So um, you just mentioned federal courts. Do you have to file through federal court in most of them, or, or are these also state courts? Uh, it's all of the above. You know, we've, we tend to file frequently in federal courts just because of the First Amendment issues involved uh, in, in the Janus decision recommend, uh, recognizing the constitutional implications of uh, dues deduction and, and union membership in the public sector. Um, but we have filed cases in state courts. We have filed uh, unfair labor practice complaints with the various state labor boards. Uh, it's, you know, every case is different. Every fact's pattern is different. So we try to, you know, make sure that we're filing in the most appropriate venue to resolve whatever the issue is. Uh, if, if it's kind of our bread and butter tends to be in federal court, uh, but if it's something that maybe, uh, what would be a good example, uh, you know, a union providing false information to an employee about their, uh, about their rights or implying or telling them that they have, uh, that they have to jump through certain hoops that they really don't have to jump through in order to resign their membership. Uh, then that kind of thing, maybe we will resolve with a labor board complaint. Uh, there was a situation. Wait, are, are you saying that unions lie to workers? <laughs> yes, it, it happens uh, quite frequently in our experience. Uh, you know, you, I think there's a misconception, maybe, but not among most of your listeners, I'm sure, but uh, but in the broader public, I think there's a misconception that unions are somehow fundamentally different from business enterprises, and, and in some ways the opposite. Um, but really, that's that's the wrong way to think about labor unions. Unions are are an industry, are are businesses essentially, just like any other. They provide a service, workplace representation, and in exchange, they get paid. Uh, to provide that service and the dues that, that members pay. And so they have an interest in maximizing dues collection, just like any other industry would. And they get very touchy about the work that we do and, and the interest that some of their members have uh, in resigning and, and ceasing their financial obligations. So this is a, uh, an issue with strong passions uh, and kind of often an ends justify the means mindset, which manifests itself in uh, bad information being given out in coercive practices and illegal practices. Uh, I mean, we've seen some pretty extreme behavior uh, from some of these unions. I mean, including uh, even forging people's signatures on membership forms. I was just going to mention that because you have a uh, blog post up 
from yesterday uh, where California Union forges another signature to keep a member locked into paying dues. And that was SEIU Local 72 in California, right? Uh, 721, yeah, SEIU Local oh, okay. 721, yeah. So this is the, by, by my count, uh, this is the 14th uh, federal lawsuit that we have filed on behalf of a public employee, union-represented union public employee, whose signature has been forged on a membership agreement by the union. And, you know, going back prior to the Janus decision, this consent wasn't required. Consent was not necessary. If the employee took no action, dues would be withheld from their wages by their employer. Uh, and so the unions didn't have to worry about kind of this person-by-person -person coercion because they had their coercive dues collection practice simply written into state law and into their union contracts. In the post-Janus world, uh, where consent does need to be secured, the practices that we've seen, again, range from changing state laws to make it easy to sign people up, hard to resign. But we've also seen at the individual level that unions will manufacture consent in some cases when when they feel it is appropriate. And I don't know, uh, I don't have a particular window into these uh, unions to see where this is coming from. Uh, but I will say we were, we were all very shocked when we came across the first case like this years ago after the Harris decision uh, uh, with a home care worker out in Spokane, Washington, who was also represented by the SCIU. And after we, we took that case on and we started publicizing this and, and interacting with more workers, we continued to come across these cases. Uh, and so, like I said, I think we're up to 14 now uh, that we filed. And, and typically the pattern or, you know, something like this, you know, the employee will receive our information about their right to opt out. They'll send in a dues cancellation request to the union. Maybe they don't remember ever signing up for union membership in the first place, but they'll, they'll send something in. And the union will respond and say, well, you know, it's nice that you want to opt out, but you signed this uh, membership agreement. And according to the fine print, you can only cancel your dues deductions during this seven day, 15 day, you know, whatever it is, uh, escape period each year, which prompts the employee to think, well, gee, I don't ever remember signing a membership form. Uh, and, and usually that's around the time they reach out to us and say, hey, you know, I, I'm trying to get out. I sent in the paperwork. They're, they're giving me the runaround. I don't even remember, remember signing up for, the first, for membership in the first place. Uh, and then it's a question of getting the union to produce the membership agreement. Uh, and sometimes we can do that before litigation. Sometimes it happens after. Uh, but in, uh, again, more cases than, than we would imagine, we're finding that these documents were maybe never signed or maybe the signature on the membership agreement clearly does not match uh, the employee's actual signature. Uh, in other cases, these were uh, completed electronically, uh, but the union cannot prove or document that the individual was the one who completed the electronic membership form. So it takes a, a couple different uh, a couple different forms, but the common factor is the union is creating consent essentially on behalf of this person that they never actually provided, uh, and in some cases just outright forging signatures. Uh, and we continue to find cases like this. The, the case we just filed in California is particularly interesting because the employer uh, is actually a court. It's Los Angeles Superior Court. So we, uh, you know, our attorney is on behalf of this uh, SEIU represented court reporter, you know, are suing a court for taking dues out of their wages without her proper consent. 
uh, purely at the direction of the union. So it's kind of an interesting, <laughs> an interesting dynamic there. So when you found those cases, um, you know, forgery is illegal, at least in most jurisdictions, I would think. Does it go to the next level in investigating who actually forged the documents? So as a, uh, you know, a non-governmental entity, it's just a public interest litigation uh, outfit, essentially, we can only pursue matters in civil proceedings and civil court. And so our, our litigation so far has, has been confined to civil allegations, you know, about violating these uh, employees' First Amendment rights, seeking to recover the dues that were collected improperly. If a uh, law enforcement apparatus in any of these states was sufficiently motivated, they could absolutely pursue criminal proceedings uh, against whoever the individuals were that ended up forging these documents. That's not something that we generally get a, a window into from the civil side of things. You know, we, we sue the union, we'll sue the employer, um, but we often are, don't know and don't have any way to know. Uh, you know, what individual union organizer or union officer or staffer committed the forgery. Uh, and it's, it's not particularly relevant to the civil proceeding. But uh, bear in mind that the states that we're finding these, these cases in are predominantly West Coast states so far, again, where we've been operating the longest and, and uh, have dealt with the, the highest number of employees. Uh, but Washington, Oregon, California, you know, our attorneys general, our county prosecutors and so on are not generally too keen on uh, the idea of prosecuting labor unions, that's just the political reality. It's unfortunate, uh, for sure, because this is outrageous behavior, uh, and it apparently is happening with, with some degree of, of uh, regularity. Uh, in some of these cases now, we've, we've come across so many instances of forgery by the same union repeatedly that we're starting to file uh, RICO cases. Uh, in I was just going to ask you about that because you're also, it's crossing state lines, number one, and you're talking potentially tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. The, the key for a RICO claim is, is the repetition. Uh, and so if, if the same union starts, if we can document that the same union has engaged in this pattern several different times, uh, then that's, that's when you start getting into RICO territory. Uh, states, there's of course a federal RICO uh, uh, law, but the states often have similar equivalents. So we've we filed a couple uh, federal RICO claims. We filed, I believe, one uh, uh, state law-based RICO claim down in Oregon, uh, and those are plodding along. We'll see where they go, uh, but the facts are fairly straightforward. I, I don't believe in these cases the unions have been able to dispute that a forgery has has occurred. Uh, generally, they're trying to argue against the case on procedural grounds of some kind that, for whatever reason, uh, federal courts can't provide redress in these cases or, or technical arguments of that nature. But substantively, uh, they tend to avoid arguing that no forgery took place. Uh, and, and I think they just probably because they can't argue that. So if it's um, so if you're seeing it in on the West Coast primarily, and it, is it the same union across the state lines like? I won't name the union because I, I can guess which one, but um, are you seeing any of that in, say, Pennsylvania, Ohio? Uh, we've not come across any documented forgery cases yet uh, in Pennsylvania or Ohio. I believe all of the cases that we've actually filed uh, are uh, coming out of Washington, Oregon, or California. 
uh, oftentimes uh, they involve multiple unions, but the one that, that crops up most often uh, is the Service Employees International Union, the, the SEIU. Now the issue there is that the SEIU has different locals uh, and for legal purposes, generally each local is treated as a distinct entity, uh, as a distinct organization. And they do have their own bylaws and their own finances and their own legal recognition for federal and state law purposes. Uh, and so it can be a little bit challenging to link affiliates, different affiliate groups that may be operating in different states. But I will say that generally most of our cases involve affiliates of uh, locals uh, affiliated with the SDIU. That, that different local argument was the argument that Craig Becker used. I don't know if you know that name, but he was the general counsel of the SDIU, went to the National Labor Relations Board about 10 years ago. And he said he would recuse himself from SEIU cases. And then when a case came up involving a local, I think it was out in California, he said, well, that was a union local. So he didn't recuse himself, claiming that they're separate entities. Whereas if you look at the SEIU's constitution, it clearly, it's like the parent corporation, right? right. So it's like your, your Apple corporation versus your Apple stores. They're kind of wholly owned entities almost. Mm -hmm. um, I would think that at some point somebody's going to break through that argument that they're separate. I, you know, it, it depends on what legal framework you're arguing under. I, I think at the end of the day, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that argument that uh, that NLRB members uh, who tend to be with a labor background uh, will, will deploy. I think some of the current appointees are, are making similar arguments. Uh, and you know, I, I guess it just depends, like I said, on, on what the law. In, in a given uh, situation says, you know, uh, Washington State's campaign finance laws, for instance, uh, go out of their way to make sure that union, different uh, union locals are not treated as the same entity for campaign contribution limit purposes. So SCIU has six different affiliates in Washington State. They can each give the maximum contribution to a political candidate in Washington. Oh, and by the way, the SCIU State Council can also give the maximum contribution limit, and the international SEIU can give the maximum contribution limit. So it kind of incentivizes having a, a large number of, of uh, affiliate entities, because uh, each one gets you, you know, an, an additional uh, contribution amount. So there's, there's situations, I think, in the law where they're treated the same, there's situations in different laws where they're treated differently. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an attorney. I, I don't know that I can make overly sweeping pronouncements on how appropriate that is in every context. But I think as a practical matter, you're absolutely right. These organizations are very closely linked. Uh, the dues revenue that a local collects, it, you know, goes up the food chain according to the union's bylaws and, and gets a portion among all of the higher level affiliate entities. The lower level affiliates all have to abide by the international's bylaws and, and their procedures and rules. So they're very closely connected. There's, there's no doubt. Uh, but proving that there's a formal legal connection, I think, just comes down to, you know, what law you're operating under and, and what the facts in, in a given case are. Well, you know, when when the NLRB starts ruling on um, joint employer and and you know on the franchises and so on, I think that's going to be one of the arguments that could be made about unions, which it's kind of one of those be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. <laughs> Entirely possible. Well, lots of interesting developments happening with the LRB these days, and, and there's, uh, I think, a, a, there's always a, a potential for one side or the other to uh, to use a victory that the other side adopts uh, and, and turn it for their own purposes. So, 
we'll see where things go in the next couple of years. Yeah. You have an interesting story that was up, uh, I guess it was last week. The, um, you have a former, well, an educator used uh, her, her union fees that she got back to help with human trafficking, help and, the victims of human, human tra trafficking. And, and that was, you know, that was a great story because it, it highlights the, 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 the individual rights aspect of, of this entire issue. Uh, you know, we've long believed and argued even before the Janice decision uh, that this is a civil rights issue, that forcing people to fund a private organization that then uses their dues money uh, to advance any number of controversial uh, or highly political causes, candidates, or organizations, that, that's a violation of people's free speech, that's a violation of their free association, uh, and people should be free, public employees should be free to abstain from subsidizing those causes and those speech and keep their own money and their own paychecks so that they can put it towards whatever cause, whatever activity uh, they do believe in. And, you know, for some employees, uh, you know, their reason for resigning union membership may be financial. Maybe they simply have, you know, needs that uh, they believe are more important than uh, whatever value they're getting from the dues that they pay. Uh, in some cases, people decide they're going to you know, put that money that they would otherwise pay in union dues towards some other type of advocacy or, or uh, uh, even political activity that, that is in line with their values and beliefs. Uh, and so in this particular case, you know, we, we had worked with uh, an Ohio teacher uh, who resigned her, her union membership and decided that uh, she was going to take the money that, that she saved uh, instead of sending it off to the Ohio Education Association and donate it to organizations that fight human trafficking. Uh, and she wanted to let us know, you know, she was so thankful that she was able to put that money towards something that she actually believed in instead of subsidizing an organization that did not reflect her values. And, and people are making those types of decisions around the country you know, every day. That's, that's what we're trying to enable and facilitate. Uh, if at the end of the day, a public employee decides that their union is advocating for their interests and is doing it well and, and that the, the dues they're paying is worth the investment, you know, we, we tell that person, well, go ahead, keep doing what you're doing. Um, but there's a lot of people that, that for, again, a variety of reasons, think that they could put that money toward a better use. You kind of mentioned or touched on this a few minutes ago. Um, you guys do outreach. How? What kind of outreach do you do? Because it seems to me that a lot of the, especially in the states where you guys don't have offices right now, um, a lot of the barriers to people fully exercising their rights is they don't know what their rights are, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah, that, that is uh, absolutely true. And, you know, even now where we're coming up on, on what, almost four years after the Janus decision at the end of this month, uh, there are still people that have never heard of it, uh, that maybe have heard of it, but don't fully understand what it means. Even if they know that the Janus decision at some level means that they can't be required to pay union dues, they still don't necessarily know how to go about it. They don't know what they lose or what they gain. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of misinformation and misconception still. Much of it facilitated and, and fostered intentionally by, by union messaging. Uh, unions will leave people with the impression, sometimes they'll claim outright, that employees will lose uh, employer-provided benefits or health insurance or retirement or that they won't get raises 
if they resign their membership. And those, those claims are certainly not true. State laws and, and union contracts are binding on all the employees in a given bargaining unit. Uh, and the employer is obligated to continue providing the same wages and benefits to non-union members as it is to members. Uh, so there's there's a lot to to inform and to correct the misinformation that's been out there. And so we try to adopt a very all-of-the-above approach to doing that. And, and we find that it really takes uh, an all-of-the-above approach to break through to people and reassure them and, and get them good information. So we... Uh, we try to focus as much as we can on direct communication with specific union represented employees. Uh, and that takes the form often of email, uh, information, uh, direct mail, postal mail when, when we can. Uh, we do have you know digital outreach that takes place. And in some cases where the scale and the resources uh, permit, uh, we'll even send people door to door. Uh, we'll have folks talking to employees either at their homes or uh, perhaps outside their, their place of work. Uh, to, to speak with them one-on-one, -on -one, give them a pamphlet or a brochure with more information about their union and how to opt out and, and answer any questions. And a lot of times that face-to-face -face interaction is what is what people need to be comfortable with, with the idea. Uh, and, you know, not everybody checks their email all the time. Not everybody goes through the, you know, the stacks of mail that you get in your, in your mailbox. So sometimes having that face-to-face -face conversation is, is what you need to break through to people. The um, digital advertising, is that like Facebook ads, things like that? Facebook ads, Google ads, uh, internet, internet banner ads, uh, again, kind of an all of the above approach uh, that we tailor to the state that we're operating in. And uh, yeah, so we, we have certain, uh, we have to take into account certain realities as we operate in one state to the next, and that influences how how our outreach campaign is crafted, but generally we're, we're doing all of those things that we can, uh, certainly mail, certainly email as, as kind of the bread and butter, but yeah, uh, certainly digital as well and, and canvassing and door to door where we can. So most of the union opposition that you guys encounter is that due to, um, you're trying to weaken the union, you're trying to bust the union, you're, somehow some right-wing conspiracy-oriented group or something, I don't know. But the, you, you've got to, you've, I'm sure you guys take heat for what you oh, do, yes. right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it takes different forms depending on the context. And the unions are different, and, the, and kind of the flavor of union leadership is, is different from one union to the next. And so they, they'll respond in various ways. Uh, I mean, unions will certainly counter-message to their membership, uh, and those, those arguments are pretty much the same that, that you listed. Uh, you know, the Freedom Foundation is, is anti-union, they're anti-employee. Uh, a lot of misinformation about the implications of resigning your membership, as I, as I mentioned, and mm -hmm. they try to make it sound scary and, and uh, you know, like you're, you're you know, harming <laughs> the, the common good if, uh, if you exercise your, your individual rights. Uh, so that's that's certainly kind of the direction that they tend to go. A lot of personal attacks against us uh, and against the staff and the leadership here at the Freedom Foundation. Uh, there is an organization, uh, 501c4, a non nonprofit organization that was created uh, by unions a few years ago to, to basically just harass our staff and our uh, board of directors and so on. Uh, so sending mail to our neighbors, accusing us of a variety of heinous and untrue things and showing up and picketing our events. And so there's, 
there's kind of the, the counter messaging to the members uh, that again happens around the country. And then there's kind of the direct uh, attacks against us as an organization and our staff that, that uh, happen periodically as well. Is, um, yes, yeah, I understand from the union's perspective of not wanting to have to represent people who aren't paying you. So as a former union rep in a right to work state, we had to do that. So that's kind of understandable, but it also, I've also been of the opinion, even when I was a union rep, that if, you're, if your services are good, the vast majority of people are not going to want to be freeloaders. And so then it goes back to volunteerism, which Samuel Gompers promoted a lot, you know, 120 years ago. So it's, it's interesting when you see unions go the thuggish route, for lack of a better term, um, and try to coerce people into continually paying as opposed to improving your services so that they want to pay. And I think that's, I think that's just out of habit more than anything else, to be honest, because I, I agree with you. I, I think if, if unions were serious about maintaining their membership, uh, they would have to reinvent themselves uh, in, in the post Janus world and make sure that they are uh, focused on providing value and, and communicating value and persuading people of, of uh, the, the value of membership. Um, but I think that would would require at some level not just a change in perspective, because again, unions are used to dealing with agency fees, compelled dues collection. That's that's just the mindset. And I think again, I, I mentioned this earlier. I think there's a strong ends justify the means mentality among organized mm -hmm. labor. We're out to solve the world's problems, and by golly, it's good for you whether you think it is or not to be a member. So I, I think that provides some some intellectual cover for some of these very coercive, uh, very abusive practices that we see play out. Um, and that's, I think that's just a reflection of the priorities, the ideology, uh, the leadership of government unions in America today. And so that, again, that leads towards trying to cling as much as possible to the old coercive model as a way of maintaining uh, influence and, and revenue. Uh, now, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the dynamic of having to represent people that aren't paying dues that aren't members. And we're not unsympathetic to that argument either, uh, but I think there's a couple important things to keep in mind. First is free ridership essentially, you know, for lack of a better word, happens in other areas of society all the time. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody on the, on the left or among unions would argue that every gun owner in the country needs to be a member of the National Rifle Association necessarily. Right. But there's a straight-faced argument to be made. Certainly the NRA would say we're providing a service that benefits not just our members, but every gun, over, gun owner in the country. The difference is the NRA doesn't seek to pass laws uh, that would require every gun owner to pay union dues. <laughs> and so that's just kind of baked into a free society. Certain people are going to associate uh, together and do work that benefits you know, their group or beyond. Uh, and, and you can't force people to pay for that if they don't want to. That's, that's just kind of baked into a free society. Uh, and so I don't see that unions are uniquely any different than that. Um, but even still... That's an interesting but, argument I had not considered that way. Well, and, and that's just kind of taking things as, as they are. Um, mm -hmm. but, but even still, I, I think that if unions wanted to deal more directly with the free ridership issue, there are policy solutions that that would be uh, something we could even agree with at the Freedom Foundation. Uh, in certain states, for instance, uh, 
exclusive representation, the, the idea that a single union gets the monopoly to represent a group of employees, which is really at the root of the free rider issue, uh, that doesn't exist, or it exists in a very different format, uh, you know, where essentially a union speaks to an employer on behalf of only the members of the organization, not this broad unit of people that includes members and non-members. Uh, and so there are ways, I think, where you could change labor law at the state level to provide, again, that, that the union only represents those who choose to pay dues. And that would free the union from having to represent people that aren't paying, but it would also free those employees who maybe think they could do better uh, in dealing with their employer than they're going to get under the union contract. If you've got a highly skilled teacher uh, who's maybe bilingual or has a, a background in STEM that is uniquely uh, uh, valuable to a particular school district, that person may think, I, I could probably get a better contract with the district than the seniority-based, one-size-fits-all model that, that a union contract is going to provide. Uh, and so there, there are certainly individual public employees who would be happy to free themselves from union representation and not just membership. So there's creative ways to solve this problem, uh, and, and it only exists in states where unions have uh, the political influence at the state level to create these monopoly privileges of, of exclusive representation. So theoretically, if the unions cared enough uh, about the free rider problem, they have the influence at the state level to change it. But at the end of the day, just like any other monopoly, they would rather be the sole provider of workplace representation services and be the only game in town for that market than have to compete with you know, alternative forms of representation. And, and if it means that maintaining their monopoly uh, means they have to represent some free riders along the way, that's a better deal to them than having than giving employees options about how to secure workplace representation that's right for them. So what you're talking about is um, what's, what was referred to as members-only bargaining probably about a decade ago. Mm -hmm. It started floating up, um, and I think, I think there was a lot of left-leaning professors who suggested that in a paper, I want to say around 2010, 2011, and then it just went quiet on that. And I don't, <laughs> I'm not really sure why. Um, but members only bargaining, which if a union is very good at bargaining, they're going to get a contract for their members. That's very good. Theoretically, people would want to join it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to those that don't, you're, you're left to your own devices. It's, it's not as crazy an idea as it sounds. If you go back to the days prior to the National Labor Relations Act, uh, it was fairly common for these, you know, minority unions, if you will. Uh, to exist and to bargain mm -hmm. with employers on behalf of their membership. Uh, but of course, the National Labor Relations Act is the same model that, that states have generally adopted uh, in the public sector. And that's where this idea of exclusive representation and bargaining unit certification and, and bargaining came from. Uh, but yeah, after, uh, I don't know about going back to 2010, that was a little before my, uh, a little before my time, Peter, I was still in college then, but, uh, but certainly in the years since the Harris decision and the Janus decision, there have been some labor-aligned academics, uh, Catherine Fisk, I believe, and Ben Sachs, who even had formal roles uh, within unions like the SEIU, who have floated this concept. Uh, I, I want to say even in prominent uh, newspaper op-eds, I want to say one in the LA Times, perhaps. So it, it gets some conversation, 
because it is a it is an actual solution to the free free rider problem. But I think the reason that you don't hear more about it from the left and from organized labor uh, is because unions really do believe it's more valuable for them to maintain the monopoly than it is to deal with free ridership. Now, some states have even floated, left-leaning left states have floated this idea. We've seen legislation introduced. Uh, I think Oregon a few years ago, maybe Hawaii, again, around the time of the Janus decision. And what you saw was that, the again, the, these are states where the majorities could have passed this legislation had unions wanted them to do it. Uh, and, and what you saw was that... I think there were probably legislators thinking they were doing the unions a favor by introducing these bills, uh, only to find out that the unions really didn't support them. And so they, they died on the vine and haven't been heard from since. So mm. it's hard for me to take our union arguments about free ridership uh, with, with much uh, credibility, because again, the, the tools are available to solve the problem. Uh, they would just prefer to maintain their monopoly on representation and not have to deal with alternative options uh, for workers. It's interesting. It you know, there's a there's a wider argument, um, and I've had this discussion a couple of times that you know, for example, in New York, they've got a just cause law, and it's mostly for, I believe it's just for fast food workers at this point, and it's just in New York City. And now in California, they're starting to pass um, legislation about warehousing and the productivity standards and things like that. The more that unions get reliant on government to solve their problems, the less reliant people will be on unions. And they have not figured out that correlation. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting perspective. And I, I, think, you're, I think you're on to something. Uh, and, and certainly... Well, I guess just uh, three thoughts on that point. One of the critiques for government unions uh, and why they are different fundamentally from private sector labor unions is this fact that, that they have essentially two bites at the apple, so to speak. They can try to achieve their goals in bargaining with a city, state, school district, what have you. Um, but if they fail at securing what they want at the bargaining table, they can always just lobby the elected body to pass and, and give them what they want by a legislation. So they've got more than one angle of attack. Uh, generally, private sector unions, that's a little harder, although they're figuring this out too, uh, as, as we've seen with the way that some of these minimum wage laws and, and other employment laws are structured to incentivize unionization. Uh, but, but to your broader point that, that the more government regulates labor, the less need there is for unions. I think the union's argument is especially in, in this post-Janus uh, world where we're moving kind of more towards optional membership, at least technically, their view is we, we want to reinvent ourselves. We want to portray ourselves not as providers of, of workplace assistance, but as a social movement, as a social cause that, uh, that people beyond unions should be interested in supporting. And that certainly appears to be the direction that certainly the government unions are headed. Uh, they tend to be headed by the more ideological, more progressive uh, union officers and, and staff generally, and it fits with their worldview to do that. Um, so I think in, in their perspective, it's this is natural for them. They want to transform society. They want to transform the economy. Uh, and as long as they control the levers of, of government and to, you know, to do this, to implement this societal transformation, they can use those same levers of government to ensure that they're getting government grants, that they're getting taxpayer subsidies of some kind, that 
people are compelled or coerced certainly to, to pay dues who otherwise wouldn't. So I, I think in their view, the way around that problem is you just take people's choice away. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. I think the, the last question that I remember you asking was about uh, how basically as unions regulate more aspects of employment through government, they're kind of diminishing the need for their own existence. And so I was offering some thoughts on, on that. Yeah, well, it's, it's an argument I've had for years. Um, my graduating paper from college was on the decline of unions. And although there's a lot of factors, one of them that has never been explored enough is the rise of government employment laws you know, or, or employment laws through government serving as the protector of workers. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things, the more we've seen, you know, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, the, um, you know, I don't think you said fight for 15, but it's the minimum wage laws. So the SEIU launched the fight for 15 back in 2010. I think the first strike was in 2012. And they spent hundreds of millions of dollars doing strikes, protests, all that sort of stuff, and they don't have a single bargaining unit to show for it in fast food. Now they're they're going industry wide trying to unionize. They've done they've been very successful in raising the minimum wage, but they haven't gotten union dues from it. So their union members have been subsidizing this for years. And now with inflation, it kind of makes the fight for 15 a moot point because now they're doing fight for 20 or whatever they're calling it. Um, and it's just a, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, if you're a business and you're investing all this kind of money, but somebody's providing the services for free, kind of puts you out of business. Just cause and, laws. And and that's a, that's a perfectly valid point. Uh, although I, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's true in all cases in all places. Uh, certainly out here uh, in the Puget Sound area up in, up in Washington State was, was the hotbed in the early days anyway for that fight for 15. Uh, first $15 minimum wage ordinance was adopted up in the airport town of SeaTac, Washington, and that, of course, was exported in short order to Seattle, and, and then it went from there. But what we saw in a lot of these quote-unquote living wage ordinances uh, that were getting passed uh, in these left-leaning municipal governments was a a carve-out, essentially, for union contracts and an exemption for uh, collective bargaining agreements. And that was actually the the subject of my first op-ed for the Wall Street Journal uh, was how how unions were creating incentives for employers to unionize uh, as a way to avoid having to comply with all of the regulations that went along with these living wage ordinances, which in many cases went far beyond just a minimum wage. I mean, up, up here, in the, again, in the Puget Sound area, I mean, it was a host of workplace regulations, uh, and any of which could be waived entirely uh, in a union agreement. So I, I think your, your broad point about the amount of money that unions like SCIU invested in the fight for 15, you know, not producing a return on investment, I, I think is correct. Although I think it's also true that uh, certainly there are some uh, firms, uh, businesses, maybe not all in fast food, uh, but others that were subject to these ordinances that did end up unionizing that probably would not have uh, absent that activism. So it's not a total loss for uh, for the unions, but uh, I, I think generally, I mean, unions are, are shifting their mindset 
and, and viewing themselves not so much as providers of workplace representation as uh, facilitators of social and economic change uh, and, and remaking the, the world and the image that they uh, prefer. Uh, that certainly seems to be the mindset of the more progressive government unions is that we are, we are out to be a social movement and a social cause that, that people beyond union members should support. At least that's the way they're marketing themselves. And so that lends itself naturally to this type of government regulation that we, uh, that we see proliferating in labor and employment. Um, but I, I don't know that that automatically means that the unions are legislating themselves into irrelevance either. I mean, if, if unions have the sufficient political influence to implement the type of policy changes and, and, and reforms that they want uh, to labor and employment and a host of other things, then they have, they have the political power to make sure that uh, taxpayers are subsidizing uh, union work or that there are coercive mechanisms in place to make sure that people are paying membership dues. I, I think once they get to the level of influence that's required to remake society, that they have sufficient influence to find some way to make sure they keep getting paid. E even if, you're right, technically, the, the reason for their existence is diminished the more the government steps in and, and regulates labor and employment. I think, practically speaking, they'll still find a way to make sure they get paid and they remain influential and in control of, of uh, the political process. There was, um, this is kind of tangential to this conversation. There's a, you're familiar with the Economic Policy Institute, right? Yes. The EPI. There is an article probably within the last couple months of how public sector union membership is the key to better financial rewards, essentially. So it's, it's making the argument that public sector workers should be unionized because you're going to make more money. And the, like the flip side to that, which is kind of surprising, and it's a total 180 to unions 50, 60 years ago, is that your private sector union members, as well as all other taxpayers, are going to pay for that. It's literally a robbing Peter to pay Paul. To, to the extent that that's true, yes, that's that's correct. Uh, now, I think there's there's some arguments about what effect collective bargaining uh, in the private sector and in government has on wages overall. Uh, unions are fond of touting, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, information that comes out every year that just compares wages of union-represented workers across the, the board, across industries nationwide to wages of uh, workers that are not union represented. And, and typically just at that macro level, the uh, union represented employees are paid more, but that uh, doesn't take into account, you know, differences in the type of employees that tend to be unionized and so on. So there's, there's debate in, in the academic literature about exactly how much unionization will improve wages. In the public sector, though, I think the more interesting financial challenge uh, becomes uh, pensions and benefits and those those types of compensation that are harder to uh, harder to write about, harder to talk about, harder for the public to understand, that don't have to be funded right away. You know, the buck can be passed on to the next administration to find a way to pay the bill for these uh, pension guarantees that have been made. And, and ultimately, that's where you start seeing the fiscal impact of government unions most acutely. 
uh, that's the, the type of challenge that municipal governments or state governments like Illinois and in California are, are going to find themselves and, and are already finding themselves dealing with. You know, how do we pay for these obligations that we've incurred in the past uh, without going bankrupt? And, and in some cases, that's it's not going to be possible. You know, and, and different state laws, of course, are going to produce different outcomes, but. In a lot of cases, that that isn't good for the employees either. You know, to, just because you promise a pension that's that's uh, very generous doesn't mean anything if you can't actually pay the bill uh, when it comes due. Uh, and and certainly, if there are to be bailouts and so forth, and that comes from taxpayers, that comes from private industry, that comes from uh, private sector unions. At the end of the day, so there's. Uh, it's interesting. We just had a bailout in the private sector pension worlds uh, with the last stimulus check, and it got almost no coverage. It's like $80 billion that went to fund up some of the pension plans. might have been more than that, but there's a lot of money, you know, Teamsters yeah. and several other units. It's, it's a massive amount of money. Yeah, you, you look at these pension plans like the uh, central states uh, Teamsters plan, that are woefully underfunded. And these, these actually tend to be private sector plans. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, these are multi-employer plans that uh, have been around for decades for the most part. And, and yeah, they are, they are woefully underfunded. Uh, the unfortunate thing about the bailout is it came essentially with no strings attached. But, you know, this money will go to prop up these pensions for a few years. Um, but without any structural reform. So at the end of the day, a couple of years from now, I, I don't know exactly the time frame. maybe it's longer than a, than a few years, but, you know, five, ten years, whatever it is, you know, we'll be back to, to where we were <laughs> prior to the bailout, uh, looking at these plans becoming insolvent again. And uh, it's just unfortunate that, you know, that money came without strings attached. I mean, nobody nobody wants uh, pensioners and retirees to uh, – experience cuts or, or not get the benefits that they were promised, but at the same time, just throwing more taxpayer money into a broken system that's going to fail eventually anyway is probably not the best policy option either. Yeah. Well, I, I think eventually what the thought process is, is they're just going to combine it like social security and have just one big plan for everybody. And, you know, public, private, doesn't really matter. It's government subsidies, basically you know, raise the taxes and just give everybody a, it's like universal basic income. They're going to have universal basic retirement, which we already have with social security theoretically, but. Sure. It's, it's some interesting ideas out there. Uh, and it gets at the scale at which uh, these organizations would like to see economic change take place. I mean, their vision for what the country and our, our economy looks like uh, is fundamentally different than the, uh, than the rules and the economic practices and freedoms that have benefited our nation so greatly over, over its history. Uh, they, they have some very different visions in mind. Well, it's European. It's, it's essentially uh, European style socialism is what the end goal I believe is. That's uh, I think is a perfectly fair characterization. Yeah. Well, Max, we've been on for more than an hour and, and unfortunately had the glitch. Um, I apologize for that. The, uh, where can people reach you? I'm going to put the links on uh, under the audio portion of this episode, but if people are just listening in their car, how can they reach you? Uh, so the best way is through our website, freedomfoundation.com. 
all one word, freedomfoundation.com. Uh, my staff page is available there with my contact information. Uh, you can read uh, our latest work on the blog. We, we have new content going up all the time. So if we're, if we're up to something, it'll be there. And uh, yeah, happy to talk, happy to answer questions about anything that we've discussed. There's other stuff that we're up to as well uh, in, in the world of uh, labor unions and, uh, and government labor policy. So happy to uh, interact with anybody that might have an interest in what we do. Now, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, at Maxford Nelson, M-A-X-F-O-R-D Nelson, N-E-L-S-E-N. Awesome. Well, Max, I appreciate the time taking out of a, whatever day of the week this is. I've been on the road for 10 days now, so Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday. That's right. <laughs> Happy to do it, Peter. It's a good conversation. All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Take care. My pleasure. You too. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was Max Nelson with the Freedom Foundation. And as you can tell, they've got a lot of stuff going on, including optouttoday.com. And I'm going to include that link as well as other links to the Freedom Foundation under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. As you can tell, we did have some audio issues uh, during the podcast, and hopefully those will be straightened out next week. I will be uh, broadcasting remotely once again. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. If you want to reach out, you can give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Hit us up on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT or at LaborUnionNews.com. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.